All right, let's turn our Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 5 as we make our way through the book. Galatians chapter 5. We're going to begin reading where we left off last week at verse 13. Galatians chapter 5 verse 13. And we'll read through the rest of the chapter. Galatians 5 verse 13. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not this liberty, or use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now notice that statement. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Now notice again. But if ye be led of the spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, Envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is is, uh, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affection and lust. Now notice again, verse 25. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I beg you again tonight for the filling of the Holy Spirit of God. Make the scripture plain to us that our hearts be grounded That, Father, we not be blown about by every wind of doctrine, but we stand firm upon the truth of your word. For we ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and for his sake, amen. All right, let's review a little bit. First of all, the human author of the book of Galatians is who? Paul. Very good. Now, we know the ultimate author of the entire Bible is God himself. For holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And all scripture is given by inspiration of God. In this case, Paul used, or God used Paul to give us his word that is already forever settled in heaven. But Paul the apostle is the answer. Now we've given two possible dates for the writing of the book of Galatians. The first one is the later date, which is what? 58. Okay. And the second one is an earlier date, which is what? 49 A.D. Now, the reason, for the, the reason I give you two dates, and I'm not going to go into all the technical stuff behind it, but there seems to be evidence for either date. Uh, for instance, if it's 49 A.D., then that means it takes place before the Jerusalem Council in 50 A.D. And you would think that if the council had already taken place, then the Apostle Paul would have referred to that council in the book. However, as far as the date 59 is concerned... There is some evidence from the timing that is involved in chapter 2 that it would have to be a later date. So which is it? Well, if it was that important for us to know, God would have saw to it that we would know. 
In other words, the truth is the same regardless of which date it is. But what I'm doing is giving you what people, what different commentators that you may read may say. And of course, they always think that they have all the answers to all of that. And uh, yet sometimes it just doesn't stand that way. The book is written to who? The churches. All right. Galatia is that area of what we know today as being central Turkey. It's that area where the Apostle Paul went on his first missionary journey when he went up to uh, Antioch of Pisidia and, and to Perga and Pam, and, uh, I'm sorry, not per- Perga, but Lystra and Iconium and Derby. And in that area, he's writing to the churches that had started in that area of central Turkey as we know it today. And the purpose of the book is what? Correcting error. Very good. And the theme of the book is what? Justified. It is important that we understand that is the theme of the book, justified by faith. This is not a book that is running down having standards in your Christian life. It's not about that. It's about being justified by faith. Even the liberty that we read about tonight and that we talked about last week in chapter 5 and verse 4, that liberty is what we have in life because we have been justified. We have been declared not guilty before God. We don't have to fret about it. We don't have to wonder whether or not we're being good enough. We've done enough right things in order in heaven. Man, we have liberty. Salvation is settled already in heaven. And we dealt with that in some detail. Now, you remember the key verse of the book is found in chapter 2 and verse 1. 16. So let's all find it. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, and we'll read it out loud together. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, you remember, we've talked about the key to this book. We need to understand with all these epistles, whoever the Apostle Paul wrote to, that when they heard it or read it, they were expected to understand what he was saying. Now, remember, when the book of Galatians was written, you take either date, 48 or 59, uh, the book of First and Second Timothy hadn't been written yet. Titus hadn't been written yet. The Gospel of John had not been written yet. First, second, and third John had not been written yet. The book of the Revelation had not been written yet. Probably first and second Peter had not been written yet. Now, there's a good possibility that James had been written, but regardless of that, there was a whole lot more Bible that was going to be given to man to complete the Bible for us on the planet. But understand this, as the Galatians were sitting in their churches... And this letter was being read to them. Paul expected them to understand what he was talking about. You remember each scripture has one primary, one main interpretation. There may be several applications to different passages of scripture, but always make sure that the context guides that application. You get outside of the context of what it's talking about and come up with something it's totally not talking about that's contrary to what he's saying, then you have done yourself wrong as far as trying to get the scripture right. Just read it. This is written to believers. It wasn't written for the theologians, lest they're saved. 
then they can get it. But the theologians are not the deciders of what the Word of God is saying. God wrote it the way he meant it. He meant it the way that he wrote it. Now, we need to review because each week as we go through this, we're not reading the whole letter just straight through for you to get it like that, but we're taking it bit by bit. But we're keeping it within the context of what the Galatians should have understood as it was being read to them. So we started back in chapter 1, and you remember the problem that had taken place is there were people had come into the church after Paul left and was telling them that in order to stay saved, they had to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised according to the law of Moses. Now, that's what the problem was about that created the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. The scripture says in verses 1 and 2 of Acts chapter 15, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. Now this was a common problem with those who were zealous for the law in the Jerusalem church. Now there's nothing wrong with being zealous for the word of God, but the problem is they had made salvation a matter of things you do instead of being justified by faith. So that these people, here they are trying to be good enough now to get to heaven. And you can never be good enough to get to heaven. That's why we need to be justified by faith. These people weren't like the Corinthians. They weren't messed up in sinful practice. They weren't doing that. They were trying to do good in order to get to heaven. It wasn't a problem with their living. It was a problem with their believing. They were starting to believe wrong, and that's what he's having to deal with them about. Now, you remember in Acts chapter 10 at the Jerusalem council, uh, well, before the Jerusalem council, the apostle Peter had gone to the household of Cornelius and won his household to the Lord. In chapter 11, he got called on the carpet for that by some of those who were zealous for the law in the church at Jerusalem. And uh, when he gave his testimony, James and the other leaders of the church said, yes, they're saved just like we're saved. They agreed with that. Now, in, Acts, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul starts right out after the salutation by rebuking the church. He says, I marvel that you're so soon removed unto him that's called you from the grace of Christ unto another gospel. And he lets him know, he said, if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. It does matter what you believe. There is only one way to be saved. There aren't two or three. There's not a multiple choice question with an A, B, C, or D. One way to be saved, and that's it, by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, after he clarifies that, he begins to give his testimony about how he got saved and even though he had gone up to Jerusalem and had seen James and seen Peter and some of the men that were there, they had nothing to add to him because he didn't get the gospel from them. He got the gospel from Jesus Christ himself on the Damascus road. Now that puts the people in these Galatian churches to where now they've got to make a decision. If Paul is telling the truth, then these other men are false brethren. Paul even calls them false brethren in Galatians chapter 2. They had to make a decision. Did he get the gospel uh, from Jesus Christ himself? Well, the answer obviously is yes, he did. 
And then in chapter 2, he goes on to give further testimony about how when Peter had come up to the church at Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas had been at, uh, he fellowshiped with the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers. But when some of those people from the church at Jerusalem came up there, Peter separated himself from the Gentile believers and would only fellowship with the Jewish believers. And his influence even had infected and affected Barnabas. Barnabas also separated himself and some of the Jewish believers within the church at Antioch. They were also swayed by these people and Peter's example. So the apostle Paul rebuked Peter to the face. He was to be blamed. Doesn't make a difference if you're Jew or Gentile. Everybody gets justified by faith. And no other way to be saved. The key verse, we've already read that. He even goes down to verse 21 in chapter 2. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. And he begins chapter 3 by saying, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? He is upset with these people. And first he lays out an obvious statement about how, how do you receive the Spirit? By the hearing of faith or by the works of the law? The obvious answer was by the hearing of faith. Notice in verse 11 of chapter 3, he says, But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Again, it's by faith. As a matter of fact, as we go through the passages in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 3, verse 24, chapter 5 and verse 4, he still uses the same terms, being justified by faith. He uses Abraham as an example and he points back to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6 in the Old Testament when the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Paul will use that same example in the book of Romans chapter 4 and verses 1 through 6. The, the truth is through all dispensations everybody has always gotten saved exactly the same way by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. There are some dispensationalists who believe that people got saved differently in each different dispensation, and that's a lie. It's always been by grace through faith. You remember that uh, Abraham was saved even before the law was given. And here we have, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, still the same way. Uh, whether it's before the law, after the law, during the law, during the time of the tribulation, people will get saved the same way. During the time of the millennium, the people who are born and then grow, they're going to have to be born again exactly the same way, by grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So in chapter 3, he began with the example of Abraham in verses 6 through 18. And the seed that he promised, the seed that he promised was Jesus Christ. He names him in this passage, not Isaac. Salvation isn't found in Isaac and obviously not in Ishmael and obviously not in the children that Abraham had by Keturah, a wife that he took on after uh, Sarah had died. But the seed of promise by which the world would be blessed, that seed, singular, is Jesus Christ himself and he makes that very plain. For righteousness, the law brought us to, to the heir, Jesus Christ. The Bible says the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith, and after the faith has come, we're no longer under the schoolmaster. Now, that doesn't mean that the law has nothing for us today. It means as far as heaven's concerned, it has done its teacher's work 
its schoolmaster work in bringing us to Christ. And then we went into chapter 4. We are servants, or we were servants, and we have been made sons by faith in the heir, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And he carried that illustration all the way through chapter 4, even reminding them in the middle of chapter 4 how when he first went to them, they received him as Jesus Christ himself. Now, they didn't think Paul was Jesus, but they treated him like they would have treated Jesus. And he's reminding them of what it was like. He says in verse 18, am I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? And unfortunately, that happens all too often. People that are won to Christ, literally won to Christ by somebody, end up turning on the ones that won them because they fell in love with some TV preacher or fell in love with some internet site where they heard a false gospel. Here's a good time to warn you. Romans chapter 16 and verse 17, mark them which which caused divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. You've got the truth, you don't move from it. God doesn't change and his truth does not change. And so we got down, he says in verse 1 of chapter 5, stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. We're not in bondage. I don't have to, listen, if you had to do certain works in order to go to heaven, give me the list because I don't want to miss any of them. I'd hate to die and go to hell because I didn't do one thing. I mean, I want the list, but we're not justified by our works. For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works as any man should boast. And he makes a statement in verse 4, Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. He doesn't say whosoever of you sin. He says whosoever of you are justified by the law. You still don't have it. We are justified by faith in Christ. He's still dealing with being justified. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of the righteousness. Again, he says, by faith. He makes a statement in verse 7. Ye did run well. Who did hinder you? Who hindered you? And usually that's the case when people get hindered. They get hindered because of the influence of somebody that they count more than what the clear truth of the Word of God says. They were hindered, and that's a shame. You remember our outline for the first 13 verses was, first of all, stand fast in that liberty. Thank God, saved by faith, not worried about hell. I belong to Christ, that's settled. Stumbling over others in verses 7 through 10. Evidently, Paul did not know the names of the people that did that. But you'll remember that later on when Paul's coming back to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey, you find the apostle Paul talking to the Ephesian elders and he says, after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, devouring the flock, not sparing the flock. He says, even of your own selves shall people rise up to lead you astray. Uh, You see, this is a dangerous thing. That's why he's given us the book, that we not be blown about by every wind of doctrine. Be careful about what you listen to, who you get hooked up with on the Internet, and stick to the clear teaching of the Word of God. My, there's everything out there under the sun that can lead you astray. And then he states the obvious in verses 11 through 13. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. It's not the law. It's not in obeying the law and circumcision or anything else. And he makes a statement in verse 12. I would they were even cut off 
which troubled you. Remember, he pronounced the curse on those who bring another gospel. He even pronounced that curse twice in Galatians chapter 1 in verses 8 and verse 9. So we get to this transition verse. For brethren, you've been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. All right, I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. Nothing can send me to hell. Therefore, it does not matter what I do. Well, it does matter what I do, but not for heaven. You see, there are some people that think that because something is not a determiner of heaven or hell, that it's not important. But if God says anything about it, it is important. For instance, take baptism. Whether I get baptized or don't get baptized, I'm saved and going to heaven because I've been justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean baptism is not important. It's the first step of obedience that a person is to take after they get saved. But hey, if they die without being baptized, they're still going to heaven if they trusted Christ. Isn't that right? Why is it important? Jesus said to do it. That's why it's important. And if it's important enough for him to tell us to do it, it ought to be important enough to us who are saved to do it. I mean, I can't imagine a person being saved not wanting to obey Jesus. He said, do it. Matter of fact, it was so important to Peter that when he leads Cornelius and his household to Christ, the Bible says, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. He didn't ask them to pray about it. He didn't say, think about it. He commanded them to be baptized. And he did that because he had heard Jesus command the disciples to go out and baptize those that they make followers. So now we continue on then from this place on. He goes into this matter of love. Uh, It's amazing studying this book of Galatians. How you see so many of its teachings Paul used not only in Galatians, but he used them in Ephesians, he used them in 1 Corinthians, he used them in the book of Romans. Uh, These arguments are so consistent throughout each one of these books. The command of love, I do not have to keep the law to be justified. I'm free to not to have to live out the will of the flesh. Notice, for all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, what's the great commandment? You remember we preached on that Sunday night. The great commandment is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22. And then he said, this is the first and great commandment. And then he said, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So the great commandment is to love God first. The second commandment is to love others as you love yourself. But you've got to love God first. If you don't love God first, then you're not even going to be able to love others as yourself. You need his love in order to be able to do that. So as he covers that, notice some of the statements that he makes here. She says, but if you divide, if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. This I say, then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, it's important that we understand this. That, all right, I'm saved. I ought to be concerned about other people. That's why we don't always tell them everything we think, everything we think they need to hear the way we think they need to hear it. Why? We love them. 
and we want them to be right. He'll even say in chapter 6 and verse 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. See, we need to be careful. In my dealings with others, they ought to be dealings that are done through love and the filling of the Holy Spirit of God. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 31, he says, Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. The law is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. And it's holy and right, Romans chapter 7. In Romans 13 and verse 10, Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. We ought to be, because we are saved, because we are at liberty, we ought to be a people who can love others, which Jesus in John chapter 13 called the great commandment. That's also dealt with, by the way, in 1 John. And then we've got the combat of life. Notice as we move on to verse 17, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. When you got saved, a lot of things happened. Yes, you got forgiven. Yes, you were regenerated. When you trusted Christ as Savior, he gave you new life. The Holy Spirit came and now lives within you. And now you've got something going on here that you didn't have before you ever got saved. Before I got saved, man, I had a foul mouth. Never bothered me to cuss. But I'll tell you what, even the thought of cussing embarrasses me. I'd be mortified if a foul word slipped out of my mouth. Never would have bothered me before I got saved, but it would bother me now. And not because I'm a preacher, but because I love the Lord Jesus. And I know he wouldn't be pleased with a foul word coming out of my mouth. Now, what he says here is the flesh lusteth, notice the wording, against the spirit. Not with the spirit, against the spirit. That word lusteth has the idea of warfare. There is a battle going on, and guess where it's going on at? Right here. Before I got saved, all I had was the flesh. But now I've got the Holy Spirit. My body's a temple of the Holy Spirit of God. So I've got the flesh warring against the Spirit of God who lives here. That's what makes the Christian life seem, I said seem, difficult. Because there's a battle going on. You've got it. I've got it. Paul had it. In Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse uh, Beginning in verse 18, he says, For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, the evil that I would not, that I do. He gets so frustrated, he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? But then he cries out in victory, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Hallelujah. I'm not on the defeated side. I'm on the victory side because the Holy Spirit of God does live within me. Here's the thing. A lot of people get saved and they want it to be just a nice, cool walk in the breeze. No problems. Not till you get to heaven. No problems when we get to heaven. Get to heaven, everything will be wonderful. Won't be any more battles to face. No more battles to fight. I'm not going to disappoint myself ever again. When I get to heaven. But until I get there, I got this flesh on me. You see, there is a reason 
why the Apostle Paul, in giving his testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he talks about what he was before, who was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, talks about the terrible things that he did, but he says, but I received forgiveness because I did it uh, ignorantly in an unbelief. Then he says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I get this, of whom I am, not was, of whom I am chief. Now, wait a second, Paul. You're doing everything right now. You're out winning souls. You're, you're living for God. What do you mean you're the chief of sinners? I'd understand if he said you, he was the chief of sinners, but he says, no, I did that ignorantly in unbelief. Here is the point friend. Before I got saved, whether it be the cursing or anything else that I did, I didn't really know any better. I had no Holy Spirit of God within me to tell me. I, I had no help from the Spirit of God whatsoever. I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. But now I'm saved. Now I do know better. Now whenever I sin, it's knowing I'm sinning. When I think certain things or say certain things or do certain things or act a certain way that I, that I know is wrong according to the book, man, there are times, some of you will admit for yourself, you feel like the chiefest of sinners because as a believer, you should know better. So the Apostle Paul is letting us know it's because there is this battle going on between the flesh here and the spirit of God within me. Well, how am I going to do right? Well, he said in verse 16, walk in the spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then in verse 18, but if you be led of the spirit, you're not under the law. All right, I can be led of the spirit now because the Holy Spirit of God does live within me. The precept was walk in the spirit. The problem is the fact that there's a battle going on. Well, what's the product of the flesh? Why do we have so much trouble with this flesh? Well, look at it in verse 17. For the flesh, I'm sorry, not verse 17, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, Hatred, variance. I stop right there just a moment. Isn't that interesting that witchcraft is a work of the flesh? You thought, well, that's spiritual. No, it's a work of the flesh. The flesh finds witchcraft fascinating. I, I don't know about you, but I have trouble understanding how any Christian mom could ever have in their home the Twilight Vampire series of books and have their children read it. You know how they do it? You know how they do it? Because they're saying yes to the flesh, not the spirit. Spirit wouldn't have you leading that, reading that. Wouldn't have your kids reading it. Why? It's witchcraft. It's wicked. God condemns witchcraft in the scripture. It is a work of the flesh. It's intriguing. It's fascinating. It lures you. But notice also, he says, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, and sedition. Not able to get along. Always, it seems, you know, some people are always in a fight. 
They're always in a fight. They're never pleased. They're never satisfied. They judge, for instance, just take church life. Whatever's going on in church life, no matter what it is, they're against it. No matter how good it is. If they didn't think of it first, it's got to be wrong. And they're always stirring up little things. Wasn't there one of the kids, was it Linus in Peanuts, that he walked around, there's always that little dust cloud. Who was it? Pigpen. Yeah, always had that little dust going. Well, there's some Christians that are like that. And they go around the church and man, there's just something going on all the time. They're not happy with anything. That's the flesh. That's what the flesh does when you're not walking in the spirit. I mean, you realize where you got two Baptists, you got three opinions. Man, about the color of the wall, the color of the carpet, about uh, what kind of chairs you're using. I mean, just, you name it. Which is what makes pastors get white hair when they're 30 years of age, having to deal with that nonsense. And that's exactly what it becomes, is nonsense. But let's move on here. He says, um, he, I, I like this in verse 21, when he says, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. What he says is here, there's a whole lot more, but you've got enough. This is it. This isn't all of it, but this is what, in other words, the flesh isn't any good. I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. How am I going to defeat it? Walk in the spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I want victory in my life. All right, walk in the spirit. You'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. By the way, let me give you another observation from the passage here. Did you notice one thing that is not mentioned in that passage about the works of the flesh? He does not mention homosexuality. You say, isn't that wicked? Oh, yeah, it's an abomination to God. But why doesn't he mention it? Work of the flesh. Because it's not a work of the flesh. Now, it's interesting. In the list that he gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he does mention homosexuality. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Know ye not the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. He mentions it in that list, but he wasn't talking about the works of the flesh. He mentions it there. Here, he's talking about the works of the flesh. Romans chapter 1. You've got to, first of all, change the truth of God into a lie. Worship and serve the creature more than the the, uh, creator and dishonor your body. God gives up on you. And then when you go to the next step on that, God gives up on you a second time. You turn men with men, women with women doing that. Now notice the terminology in the scripture, that which is against nature. The flesh never turns to homosexuality without something else taking place first where God has to give up on them. Now, when I say give up on them, I do not mean make it impossible for them to be saved. I'm simply saying God has to make a decision because of sinful decisions already made by the people before they would ever do that which is against nature. I'm just giving you the biblical answer. Now, I know all these psychologists that are out there today, of course, they deny the obvious. Just like you've got these people and counselors in school trying to tell school children they're not the sex they were born. 
And they're liars. They are liars. They're, they're wicked. And yet they're held up with some esteem. I mean, when you've got a Supreme Court justice that can't even tell you what a woman is, and she is one, there's something wrong with the thinking ability of these people. Now, let me, I don't want to get too far afield. I want to stick with this here. Uh, we need to get back to it. He makes an amazing statement, though. As I've told you in time past, that they which do such things, now look, underline this, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But wait, you're justified by faith. You're not justified by what you do or what you don't do. Has Paul suddenly become a legalist? Because he says here that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that those that do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God and such were some of you, but you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. As a matter of fact, uh, turn over to Ephesians, just the next book. In Ephesians chapter 5, he says in verse 3, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness. Let it not be once named among you as become a saint, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving a thanks. Now look at this. For this ye know. Underline that phrase. For this ye know. You know this. Now if you don't know it, you've not been paying attention. He says, for this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So is Paul saying that if you do those things, you're going to hell? But heaven and hell is not decided by what you do. He's all been very adamant for five chapters that going to heaven or hell is decided by what you believe not by the things that you do. So what conclusion do we come to? I believe the conclusion is clear in the scripture that these are, this is what the flesh does and we've all got it on us. But we are saved, we've got the spirit of God in us so we don't have to do those things and shouldn't be done. Does that mean a Christian never slips? No, not at all. These are evidences of being lost. The evidences of being saved is walking in the spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, and so on. That's what should be exuded in our life. But you know, evidence does not always reveal truth. A lot of people have been convicted of crimes that they did not commit on the basis of evidence. For instance, somebody walked in in marine blues, you know, their blue uniform. What do you call them? Okay, whatever you said. Uh, if they walked in, you would automatically assume they were Marines. It's what they have on. Isn't that right? If they were to come in in the Navy dress uniform you would automatically assume they're in the Navy. I, I've seen Brother Uechi in his Air Force uniform. And if I never met Brother Uechi, I would say, looking at him in his uniform, you know, he's in the Air Force. 
Has there ever been anybody put on a, a uniform and they weren't one? Oh, yeah. But you would understand why we, we would think they're what they looked. Listen to me, friend. If you do the things that are talked about here and people assume that you're lost, don't you get mad at them. That's the evidence you're throwing out there. That's on you and nobody else. You get that? If you're going to put on a Marine uniform, don't get mad when people think you're a Marine. Now that, that's If we go to talking about the attire of a harlot, uh, Christian ladies, you ought to be very careful how you dress. You should never wear the attire of a harlot, but if you do, don't get upset when people think you are one because you're wearing the uniform. This is clear. So he's talking about the evidence. All right, I'm a believer. I have liberty in Christ not to do those things, but I have liberty in Christ so that I can do what I am supposed to do. And if I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do, I would understand people thinking of me as a lost person. Now, with that in mind, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there is no law. All these things are right, as defined by the Word of God. But this is not the only verse that deals with the fruit of the Spirit. And because that's not, the, that's not the main issue here in the book, but he's got another verse. Turn over just a couple pages to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 9. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. So the fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians, for instance, the fruit of the Spirit is love in goodness and righteousness and truth. If it's not in truth and righteousness and goodness, then it's not the love of the Spirit. What about uh, the next one? Joy. Joy in goodness and righteousness and truth, if it's the fruit of the Spirit. If it's not according to truth, then guess what? It's not the fruit of the Spirit. He's given us the guidelines so we can identify it. Uh, What about peace? Goodness, righteousness, and truth. What about about temperance, self-control? You know, there are lost people that have self-control, and that's not the fruit of the Spirit in them. Because it's amazing the things that they'll do in their self-control that are wicked and wrong. How do we know it's of the Spirit of God, goodness and righteousness and truth? So you understand that the fruit of the Spirit here in Galatians chapter 22, all of it is encapsulated in goodness and righteousness and truth. It's amazing how people like to throw around just these two verses dealing with the fruit of the Spirit And they want to leave off the definition that we get, what the Scripture tells us it is, in in Ephesians chapter 5. So, with these things in mind, let me me get down here. I've said a lot there. All right, let's go to the constraint of liberty. Uh, The constraint of our liberty, verses 24 through 26. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh... With the affections and love. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. 
Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, note what has been crucified with the flesh. For they that are Christ crucified the flesh. In Galatians 2.20, way back here earlier in this book, he said in verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In Romans chapter 6, he tells us that the old man has been crucified with Christ. Hallelujah. I can do right. And whether I do right or do wrong, it tells you whether or not I'm walking in the spirit or walking according to the flesh. And by the way, when you do wrong, you're telling everybody you're walking according to the flesh. When you do right with the right spirit, you're letting everyone know you're walking in the spirit. See, it's not what we say it is, it's what he says it is. That's how we determine the difference. And be careful, that means you've got to put away pride, as he says here. And if he be Christ, I'm sorry, wrong chapter, uh, let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. It is not about me getting the glory, but others being helped. That's why over in the book of Hebrews, he says, provoke one another unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. This Christian life is not to be lived by myself. It's not about what can people do for me. It's what can I do for them? How can I help them in their spiritual walk? Now, next week, we'll look at the beginnings of chapter 6. But notice, this is still not the end of the conversation. For in chapter 6 and verse 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a what? In a fault. Ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Now, once you understand, get this. In dealing with other brethren, when you see something in their life that is not right with God, they're needing some help. You don't go up to them, oh, bless God, you just need to get your heart right with God. No, you go up to them in a spirit of meekness because you might be in that place where he's at tomorrow. You go up to them in a spirit of meekness and you help them. Now, as pastor, the Bible says in preaching, I'm to preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. This is the reproving, rebuking, and exhorting place right here. That's what I do here. When I'm in my office and somebody comes in or I have somebody come in that I deal with, it's restoring such a one in a spirit of meekness considering myself, lest I also be tempted. Here, it's reproving, rebuking. There, it's restoring in a spirit of meekness. You don't do this. You do that. Restoring one another. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, I am. And loving them? Well, that's the second great commandment, isn't it? Loving others as yourself. And because you care, you take them and you talk to them in love. 
That's how we restore one another like that. Now, he's continuing on. What he's done is he's taken the argument, the, the main problem, people who had been justified by faith, thinking that somehow now they had to go back to the works of the law in order to become what they need to be to go to heaven. He has taken all this to straighten it out. He's let us know now the battle that we have in our lives is because the works of the flesh and the Spirit's desires for us were to walk in the Spirit. He's warned us about that. Now he's going to complete some thoughts telling us how then we can be a help to others. Now that we're believing right, now we can be used in being a blessing to other people. And that's what we'll be discussing next week. Father, we love you. We thank you, dear God, for these marvelous truths from the Word of God. And we do pray, Heavenly Father, that we'll get a hold of these things, that we not be blown about by every wind of doctrine, but stand firm upon thus saith the Lord. Dear God, please. Now, Lord, we need to have a brief business meeting. And I pray, Lord, that we would continue to do your will according to your word. For we ask it all in Jesus' name.